Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live. We come to you every Thursday at 9 a.m. from the Cape Cod Times Newsroom. That's our Facebook uh, Live news broadcast. I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy, and I'm joined again by reporter Doug Frazier. Welcome, Doug. Doug covers the towns of Harwich and Chatham, sharks, fisheries, and other environmental stories for the paper. Uh, we'll start by talking about what officials are calling a housing a precipice for Cape Cod and some plans they have to address it. Uh, we'll touch on the deaths of two prominent uh, but very different men who had local and international uh, impacts as well as what is turning out to be a rather heated race for the Cape and Island Senate seat. Uh, we'll then talk about sharks, of course, uh, and a memorial on the water this past weekend for the man who was killed by a shark in September in Wellfleet, as well as a look ahead to a story that you're working on, Doug, about whether calling sharks and seals is a real possibility or not. You can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at home by going to our website, capecuttimes.com, or checking us out on any of our social media platforms. So let's uh, dive right into this housing report, Doug. Uh, you and I were in an uh, editorial board here at the Times mm -hmm. with some officials who were talking about uh, what they seem to think is a real crisis and, and what they call the precipice. Uh, what's the problem and what are they talking about? Well, I think the, the precipice uh, part of it comes from uh, what they see as a, a really accelerated um, marketing blitz by online um, uh, short-term rental uh, companies like Airbnb. Airbnb, is the uh, the Airbnb mentioned to uh, some, some uh, officials, I think Wendy Northcross from... Uh, from the Chamber of Commerce mentioned that uh, they saw a 35% increase in their market uh, over the past year or so. And uh, what's been happening is they there's a, just a lot of marketing to second homeowners and others to rent out their, their homes on that short-term market versus year-round. I mean, that's sort of been a trend for a long time, but, but this has been uh, drying up kind of the last reserves of that uh, uh, year-round rental market. And... Um, and it's kind of reflected in a survey they did. It's not a huge sample size, but the survey they did showed that there was uh, uh, an average uh, rental uh, for a uh, studio was a $705. I'm sorry, not a studio, for a, uh, a room in a house Just was, a seven, a house, was yeah. $700, $705, you know, plus utilities and all that. And for a three-bedroom home, it's uh, uh, $1,875 uh, plus utilities, et cetera. And, but that's if you can find the house. Um, so the, the problem is, like, if you looked at Barnstable, for instance, there's only like a 1% uh, vacancy rate for rentals. And, and they consider the kind of goal is like 7%. So they're, they're way off there. And these uh, uh, housing advocates feel like that's reflected uh, throughout the Cape. Uh, uh, the... Um, Housing Assistance Corporation CEO uh, Alyssa Magnata Galazzi said that uh, there was a uh, 3,000 seasonal, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 3,000 year round rentals were lost over the past six years. And at the same time, uh, 5,000 uh, seasonal, uh, short term rentals, seasonal uh, rentals uh, were, were gained, you know, so that the, the, the disparity in year-round and seasonal seems to be widening. Um, so, so the Housing Assistance Corporation has a program that a pilot program that uh, they initiated, which is a thousand dollars to homeowners who do year-round rentals, and um, that uh, program is uh, they they mailed out to about five thousand homes, mostly like mid and upper Cape towns that 
that they determined through looking, combing through, assessing records were second homes, trying to get at least 25 people to agree to that, um, hoping that they might sort of start the snowball rolling downhill and gain more people. Got, they also offer other assistance to these uh, would-be landlords. They're looking at, um, you know, uh, ways to make, you know, their their conversion into year-round uh, landlords much easier, you know. So they offer a bunch of services that maybe a real real estate company would offer, like with lease and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and again, that thousand dollar bonus is one thing, but those other services uh, might be helpful. But you know, as as we talked about with them, you know, that seems like twenty five people, thousand dollar bonus seems like a small drop in the bucket. They do have uh, uh, larger plans to really go after and have been trying to do education uh, mm-hmm. through uh, housing institute. They've been doing looking at major kind of zoning overhauls that would make it easier to have accessory dwelling units on your property and and steer away from that uh, one acre uh, zoning requirement for which leads to kind of single family homes and not a lot of affordability over time. Right. So the crux of or the the big leverage to to get that done would be something that uh, Governor Baker has uh, submitted legislation for, uh, and and that would be to, to change the votes for zoning changes from a supermajority, which is like a two-thirds, two-thirds. vote, which is a lot of times a, an impossible hurdle if, if the article is controversial, to just a simple majority, so it would be over 50%. Um, I think the goal is still to try to do this smart growth village center type of thing. Uh, most of the housing stock on the Cape, I think it's 83% is like single family homes. Yeah. Um, and they'd like to, they think that, you know, again, the focus is on rentals rather than home ownership. I'm not ruling out home ownership, but the focus is mainly on rentals because uh, I believe there's like uh, the, the Cape Cod Commission put like a I don't know, like 4,400 rental units need to be, there's demand for 4,400 rental units uh, on the Cape that's affordable unmet. Affordable the demand is for 7,000 yeah. rental units, yeah. but 4,400 of those right. have to be affordable right. in terms of meeting right. the current demand. And, 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 you know, a lot of this is the focus is on uh, workforce housing because um, uh, uh, there's, there's a feeling that, um, we're paying more for those entry-level workers here. That's driving up costs. The, the less uh, housing you have that people can use, and there's very little of it now, uh, the more uh, people will be paying to get to those jobs. They'll be traveling from further away. The more you'll probably have to pay to get them because there'll be fewer of them. And that drives up the cost for some of the you know, basic services uh, that people need, especially seniors, and that's 28% of the Cape population. And so... Uh, um, simple things like, uh, well, not simple, but uh, things that are really needed, like healthcare, like home healthcare, things that uh, programs that are being developed that require workers that are uh, uh, on the lower end of the pay scale are going uh, to, those things, those workers are gonna, going to be costing more and that cost gets translated up the line to yeah. us. Their report that they issued was called the high cost of doing nothing, and they, mm. they see a kind of ripple effect of this housing issue affecting the entire economy, and that's really what they're trying to do is kind of sound the alarm that this is going to be something that's going to – we've known about it for a while, but they're saying it's we're reaching a point where it's really going to start affecting the rest of the economy. One of the things where their Rent 365 program where they're offering that $1,000 bonus, they're really not going for like the people with – 
you know, a second home that's a mansion or a waterfront, you know, that's making a lot of money in the rental market. They're looking for people kind of more in this kind of, they kept calling it a sweet spot in terms of maybe they got it, uh, bought a home as an investment and it's more work than they thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's not making as much money as they thought it would uh, on the seasonal market. And they're saying maybe those people would want to switch to a, a more st- a steady uh, kind of line of income that's year round. And there's even, they talked about a 50 week lease. So maybe you could have your home for the two weeks of until you retire. And, and then uh, the other 50 weeks you're, you're renting it out to somebody else. So um, that's a, I, I feel like we could spend an entire show or five shows talking about housing. Um, and you're doing more reporting on that. And you had done previous reporting on that two thirds majority, the simple majority uh, question at town meeting, which again was always mm. uh, something that was really a holdup. I know you've talked yeah. about that uh, quite a bit over the years. It's a big hurdle. It, it really is. Um, and I'm going to touch here uh, really quickly compared to kind of the impact of these two men's lives. We, there were uh, two deaths uh, this past week of, of two men who were really prominent in, in different uh, arenas on the Cape. Um, and uh, one in particular in many arenas, Timothy McCarthy, uh, uh, who actually lives in Truro, I believe, but was really well known in Provincetown for his filmmaking. Um, he was an archivist. He uh, archivist. He was a, a, a uh, advocate for marijuana. Um, he was a activist for the LGBTQ uh, community, including abroad in Uganda. I mean, it was amazing to read about everything that he had done um, in his life. He died. Uh, Friday in Providence, Rhode Island. Circumstances around his death are still a little unclear. We're still trying to find out more about exactly what happened. But he was somebody who was really well known out on the outer Cape um, and uh, somebody who had the outpouring of, of condolences and memories that came out on, on social media was pretty incredible to see. So we talked to a, a few of his friends and, and uh, acquaintances, and, and there was really a lot in that story about the work he did. Uh, he was somebody who everybody said really kind of had what was courage of conviction, really just dove in. Going to Uganda, one of the people who knew him well, Brian O'Malley from uh, Provincetown, said that he was always worried for him going to Uganda. Uganda is an openly gay man, a very openly gay man, and uh, the potential danger there. But he said that's what McCarthy did. He, he kind of went into situations and, and attacked them uh, full bore, and uh, it's, he certainly is going to be missed on the outer cape. Uh, another person... Um, and this one interested me because I didn't get around to kind of reading this until a couple of days after uh, our reporter Christine Legere had written it about uh, o- Osamu Shimomura. He was a Nobel Prize recipient who worked at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, and he died in uh, Nagasaki, Japan on Friday as well. He was 90 years old. Um, and he was at MBL for uh, about 20 uh, years, um, and he was a you know, distinguished scientist emeritus. The work he did was on bioluminescence, which you know probably a lot about bioluminescence, being out on the beach a lot, Doug. It's, you know, it's always amazing when you're walking along and you see the, the uh, sand glowing behind you as you're walking or you're in the surf maybe, and you're, you see it uh, kind of glowing around you. Uh, but he actually discovered... Uh, and isolated this green fluorescent protein from this jellyfish. And that's the thing that, that then was used uh, to do this, uh, uh, this light muscropy, uh, microscopy, excuse me, which allows scientists to see cellular components and processes that they weren't able to see before. They basically tag it with this bioluminescence and they can follow it and, and figure things out from that. So it's pretty important work. He had won the Nobel uh, Prize in Chemistry in 2008 with a couple of other uh, scientists. 
Um, really amazing work and a lot to read through on both those men, uh, Timothy McCarthy and Osamu Shimomura. Um, uh, both died this week. I encourage our readers to, to go to KeepCutTimes.com and, and learn more about them. Um, and then, uh, I don't know how much you were able to read today's story on Lead Doug and, and this uh, Cape and Island Senate race, uh, which is really turning into a race uh, that's, that's heating up compared yeah. to some of the others. Um, John Flores is challenging sitting uh, state senator Julian Sear, a Democrat from Truro. Flores is a Republican. Um, and there's been some accusations flying around. Uh, first, earlier this week, uh, Flores had uh, accused Sear of not living in the district. Uh, he basically said, we don't, we don't know that he lives here. Um, we haven't been able to find anything specific that indicates Sear doesn't live in Truro as he says he does. He says, going back to the housing issue, he says, listen, you know, even on my salary, which, which he's been dinged for uh, voting himself a pay raise uh, right when he got into office, but even on that salary, he says, it's difficult to buy a home in the, the Outer Cape and Truro, which everybody knows. So that was floating around uh, an, an accusation about whether he lived here. He says he does live in Troy. He's just, a, you know, doesn't uh, own a home there. Um, but then Flores uh, also during a debate uh, essentially accused uh, Sear of, of pushing a bill um, that Flores indicated would poison uh, children with with lead or was was bad for children um, and their blood uh, lead levels in their blood. Um, Sear quickly pushed back. A lot of people pushed back. This is a bill, and, and to explain it very simply, Jeff Spillane in today's story explains it very well. Um, essentially, the uh, state law says that at 25, again, it's microliters. Let me get the, the wording right. Micrograms per deciliter. 25 micrograms per deciliter of lead in a child's blood prompts a mandatory home inspection and lead abatement activity. So if your child is found with that level of lead, state comes in has to look at your home, figure out what's going on, because obviously it's not good. Um, and then a level of 10 to 25 micrograms uh, triggers outreach education. That's the law. The regulations right now that the Department of Public Health has in place, they're they're lower. They say at 10 micrograms, uh, we're going to do the, the home inspection. So that captures more children. And, you know, at, at five, we're going to do the out, outreach and education. And this bill essentially lines up the law with the regulations. Now, a gentleman who had reached out to us uh, previously and then apparently reached out to Flores uh, said that he wasn't happy with the law. He had uh, apparently two children who were affected by lead poisoning. He's from the North Shore. He had lived uh, elsewhere previously, and he wasn't happy with this law. He thought it, you know, it didn't go far enough. He thought it was bad for children. He thought the insurance companies were, were funding uh, you know, Sear and, and his campaigns, and, and that was why he was pushing this law. Jeff reached out to a lot of different people here, people at the uh, former uh, commissioner, uh, associate commissioner at the uh, Department of Public Health, where Sear actually worked on this issue before he became a senator, um, and said it was absurd. Uh, a doctor said this is just a good bill. This is a good idea. It increases the number of children who are covered. Um, and then uh, Jeff also tried to uh, get more information on who might be against it and asked uh, this gentleman from the North Shore, asked Flores, you know, where is this coming from? Where is the opposition in the medical community? And we weren't able to find anything. So it, it was something that seemed to be uh, floated out there. Um, and it's not clear where the backing is for, for some of the problems. So 
again, it's politics. It's that that time of year um, uh, where these things do come up, and and whether or not something is true or not is is something that we're always trying to to ferret out. And and uh, I think Jeff's story here does a, a good job of laying it out. Again, Flores was relying on this other gentleman. He said he did his homework when we tried to get more information from him. It wasn't uh, exactly forthcoming. So uh, there may be more on that. There's uh, I think a debate today where the two are going uh, at each other, and and we'll see what comes out of that. Uh, Jeff will certainly be following that. Uh, Doug, you've been following a uh, tragic event from September, uh, another attack in uh, August uh, by uh, great white sharks. Obviously, this is something that people have been talking about quite a bit. This past Saturday, you attended a, a memorial uh, at Newcomb Hollow Beach in Wellfleet. What was the mood there? What was it like? What were people talking about? And, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the reactions there? So I think the the possibility of a fatal attack has always been something that people have described as a, a watershed event that would change a lot of thinking on uh, uh, and maybe get people to take more actions for uh, protections, detection, deterrence, that kind of thing. Um, but mainly the, the day um, that uh, Saturday was about uh, – bringing some sense of closure to the family of Arthur Medici. He's 20, he was 26 uh, um, when he was killed September 15th. Um, uh, and uh, they, they hadn't been to that site except for um, his, uh, uh, what would have been his uh, future brother-in-law, um, Isaac Ro Roca, I believe is how you pronounce the name. And, um, the two of them uh, were out paddling on September 15th when, um, when uh, Medici was uh, bitten by the shark and uh, subsequently bled to death uh, there uh, rather quickly. It seems the shark hit, hit an artery. Um, and so the family came back. They went to uh, at the, the invite of the town, basically, and the, the, some of the surface who put it together uh, people in the town and also uh, um, uh, people that they asked in Chatham put the family uh, up for the weekend. The family went uh, back to the beach and, um, you know, uh, had had some privacy as they went down to the spot where um, Arthur Medici was, was actually killed for the first time. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was quiet. It was solemn. It was... Um, um, but it was t helping people to sort of process the family and the community. There were over a hundred people there. Uh, the tradition I believe coming from Hawaii is uh, of a, a paddle out into the ocean and a, cir a circle of uh, surfers, paddle boarders, et cetera. Um, and uh, sort of just a simple ceremony, but, but pretty moving. Um, and there were about three dozen who paddled out. Um, coincidentally, it was a gray, gloomy day, and, and about halfway through the, the ceremony at sea, the sun broke through, which was uh, the family really took that as a sign. I think, I think they got a lot of comfort from the, the ceremony itself. Uh, I spoke with uh, Arthur Medici's aunt, Marissa, and she said that she really felt like, uh, you know, that the ceremony helped to sort of uh, lighten up a lot of the the feelings, the grief, and and uh, that that the family had been feeling, and her personally, uh, she said the mother, uh, uh, Medici's mother and father, was still, uh, who are in Brazil, are were still in suffering um, 
deep grief over over his loss, of course. And um, but you know, you could see the family sort of lighten up as the ceremony went along. There were a number of them there, uh, and friends of uh, Arthur Medici as well. There were a number of them there, and there was uh, they were very quiet and somber initially. That a few of them spoke um, in a, as they had a, a a circle formed on the beach. A few of them spoke, and then they were. Um, that afterwards, you know, there was, you know, some laughter, some light talk. There, it was, it was nice to see them lighten up. And I think, um, you know, an uh, an interesting moment was when uh, Isaac uh, Roca um, entered the water for the first time since his, um, since Arthur Medici, you know, died, and he had his boogie board and started paddling out and i think everybody who was already out at sea uh, realized oh i don't think we want him paddling out by himself and three or four of them paddled over to him and escorted him out and um i you know he thanked everybody all the surfers who paddled out he uh you know shook their hand gave them a hug um i think there was a lot of feeling of mutual feeling that uh, you know this was a, a a good way to process you know the grief, you might say, and the incident, and the and the surfing community, and and they were bodyboarding, surfing, paddleboarding. That that all those communities are really very tight, uh, as you know, Doug, and they they're you know seem to uh, wanted to kind of envelop the family uh, and and really show them that they're they were grieving as well. There you know, there's obviously two or more parts to this. There's the personal tragedy and the, the grief that, you know, obviously the family is still dealing with. There's the, you know, the other side, which is the policy and, and what do you do to try and make uh, things safer? Um, you had actually uh, uh, written about uh, this uh, Stop the Bleed uh, meeting, I think that you attended uh, last week as well, which is more looking at, again, how do you, uh, he again, Arthur Medici bled out really quickly. There was a, uh, a man who was attacked in August, who they were able to kind of staunch the flow of the blood, and and it seems like that went a long way towards saving his life. Um, and they now have this program that they're going around with and trying to train people to be ready for this sort of thing. Um, what was some of what you took out of that uh, uh, meeting? So the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, as well as uh, Orleans Fire Department. Uh, put a program together. Um, they hope to hold, continue to hold sessions over the winter. It's called Stop the Bleed. It basically is looking at the fact that they, before the official first responders get there, as happened with William Litton, the, the doctor from Syracuse who was uh, uh, bitten August 15th, uh, they used towels and tried to improvise tourniquets to uh, help stop the bleeding for him. And the feeling is that, you know, it can be just a few minutes uh, that you have that uh, to to get that person to, to, to stop that bleeding because a mere, I don't want to say mere, but 20% blood loss can cause uh, organ failure and potentially death, even if you do get the person to the hospital. So the idea of stopping the bleed right away is something that's been kind of a national, you know, campaign. And this is sort of bringing that national campaign to this particular area and this particular topic, which is shark attacks. And I, and so the training is, is actually relatively simple. The, the, it's, 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 uh, takes about an hour, maybe a little bit less. And, um, it's essentially giving you some, uh, techniques that you as a bystander could use to stop the, the bleeding. And, and they, the Orleans Fire Department said that their EMTs 
in their cars or their vehicles, they, they carry trauma kits. And so those things in the trauma kit include trauma shears, which help you to cut the clothing away. The advice is to cut the clothing away and wetsuits right away to get an idea of where the bleeding is happening, what you have to do to stop it. And then they give you various techniques to like, you know, stuff the wound, put pressure on. And it's surprising how hard you actually have to push. The you doctor know? said, push until your hand hurts. That's For almost amazing. everything. You yeah. know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more than you would think. And then the application of the tourniquet, it's a little bit simpler. They did show us how to put the tourniquet on. Um, uh, generally speaking, it seemed as though the advice was to try to stop the bleed by conventional means first and then go to the tourniquet. Um, uh, that seemed to be what I took away from the session that I went to. And that the tourniquet, putting it on, I mean, you don't have a lot of time. So, you know, if it does, it's not stopping you um, using pressure and using... Uh, you know, gauze or towels Mm -hmm. in the wound to stop the bleeding. You go to the tourniquet and uh, the combat application tourniquet is kind of standard in trauma kits, which is basically a Velcro strap that you pull really tight. You do have to pull it really tight. And then you have like a stick or a bar that you twist, uh, I believe it's two or three times around. That causes the, the necessary pressure to stop the, the the bleeding you, you the the problem is in getting it the tourniquet really tight and that stick does help to get it uh, really tight it, it's it's actually relatively easy to use and do um, but um, you know they advised you get the person to the beach if it's a shark attack get them to the beach because it'll be much much more stable much more stable to like said, to stop it there it um, there is a new kind of innovation which is a, a um, a surf leash that uh, the cuff, there's a cuff that either goes, if you're a bodyboarder, it mm. would go around your arm. If you're a, uh, if you're a surf or paddleboarder, it goes around your leg, your ankle, or in some cases your knee. Uh, that cuff they adapted with a kind of a ratchet tourniquet that, um, that uh, w- you could use single-handed. It has a, like a bite strip that you can pull with your, uh, with your teeth, uh, or you can use one-handed, and then the the ratcheting mechanism is really easy. It's like a kind of come along that just like cinches it really tight. Uh, tests seem to show that it works, um, uh, and it's, it runs around fifty to sixty dollars. Should be in the market uh, in a in its. Uh, most current form probably sometime in january and somebody had tried to actually use a surf leash uh among other things to stop the bleeding with i believe medici uh i'm not sure with Litton, but but obviously kind of making that more kind of formal uh yeah. go a long way yeah uh the the advice with the surf leash was well it's probably not the, the best but wrap it around at least three times you know um but regular uh, surf leash regular yeah. surf leash yeah but the you know uh, Anything, like if you go back to the Boston Marathon, 27 of the tourniquets that were applied, they were all improvised improvised tourniquets. They all seem to have worked. Zero people died. It's interesting, again, the the evolution, and move on right after this, but the evolution from uh, kind of combat uh, to, you know, 
terrorism events like the the Boston Marathon mm. to now you know shark attacks here on the Cape and mm. and the the kind of uh, themes that run throughout kind of the reaction to that. Um, m- more on sharks, Doug. You're working on a story that uh, will be either tomorrow or or over the weekend uh, about the possibility of of culling and and just a brief overview, and then people can go to the paper to to read that story. So they've been talking, people immediately after the attack started talking about the culling of sharks and seals. And seals. You know, um, there there has been, certainly in other countries where we've had these fatal attacks, uh, some of them have pursued that. And, um, you know, I think uh, there's been some uh, of effectiveness to it in the most extreme cases where a lot of sharks were killed. Um, but... The, the the issues here are more around uh, the, um, the the fact that you have an enormous uh, population of seals um, that uh, can replace itself. It it would be tough to to uh, to actually um, take out take out enough. Yeah, and and, 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 and it's it's also prohibited by under law. Uh, under the uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, and and that law, it looks like it's going to be difficult to get passed. Um, and the uh, the the shark call is essentially, you know, well, you have you have a uh, a fishing prohibition on um, on uh, great white sharks, and it's no retention, no landing, no targeting. It, it, it's going to be really difficult to employ anything that directly catches sharks in order to do some kind of call. Uh, it, 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 well, actually, it's impossible. Both of these things are impossible under the current laws. Right and yeah. amending them, you know, it, there, there is, there, it's going to be a rough road to amend. So there's going to be a lot of pushback. Um, Environmentalists certainly will be uh, involved. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Uh, certainly there's, yeah, there's yeah. the question of, of efficacy. I mean, will it be something that, that does the trick if you kill off some of the sharks, some of the seals? You know, will, is it a false sense of security and people come back and there are still seals and there are still sharks? How many are out there? How many do you kill? It's a, a lot of questions. And again, you'll be looking at uh, those mm-hmm. in the story that you're working on. So definitely check out CapeCodTimes.com. Doug's story coming up on on uh, culling. And uh, CapeCodTimes.com slash sharks actually is where you can go for all our stories about sharks. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, thanks, Doug, for being here. Uh, please tell your friends, share the link, uh, and feel free to reach out to any of us. Doug, me, uh, CapeCodTimes.com. All our email addresses are there. We're where news starts on Cape Cod. Till next week, uh, have a good morning and good luck. <laughs>